This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. It's Kieran Quinn. I'm back on the airwaves after a long hiatus and glad to be back. I'm back with a new host, and I'm very excited to have him here with us today. His name is Dr. Daniel Marinescu. He is a fellow in respirology at the University of Toronto, also a good friend of mine from residency. Dan, thank you for being on the show, and welcome to The Rounds Table. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Dan, you're a long-time listener. Let's jump right in, as you know how I like to do. So why don't you introduce to us the article you chose to cover on the rounds table this week? Sounds good. So the article that I chose is called Long-Term Triple Therapy De-Escalation to Indicateral Glycopyronium in Patients with Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, which is a long name for what was called the Sunset Trial. Try saying that three times over. All right, Dan, I'm off to the races with my puns. Uh, where was this published? So this was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in May of 2018. And the first author on this paper is Ken Chapman, who is our very own respirologist here in Toronto. Ah, fantastic. I actually did not realize that. Thank you, Dr. Chapman. Okay, Dan, tell us, is a breath of fresh air, what's the bottom line for this triple therapy study? So uh, the bottom line is that in this randomized controlled trial, looking at about 1,000 COPD patients on long-term triple therapy, so LABA, LAMA, and ICS, in patients without frequent exacerbations, deprescribing ICS in these low-risk individuals appears to be safe. Okay, well, I think there's a lot to unpack there and specifically what you mean by safe. So let's get into it and find out a little bit more. But first and foremost, set the table for us. Why did you choose this article? How is this advancing the field of COPD management? Definitely. So COPD is extremely common. It's managed by a multiple family doctors to internists to respirologists. And in the last several years, there have been some changes in the gold guidelines, which really serve as our gold standard for how we look at and manage COPD. And the changes in management have been that those without exacerbation should not receive ICS because the benefit of this drug really lies in preventing exacerbations. And on the flip side, there's a lot of harm that the ICS can do if prescribed inappropriately. It increases the risk of pneumonia, it increases oral candida, mycobacterial infections, and not to mention the cost to the patient and to society at large of an extra puffer that isn't helpful. But despite this, at least half of patients with COPD are given an ICS upfront, and often this is continued indefinitely. So there's a lot of good that we can do by deprescribing ICS if it's not needed. One of the biggest trials that looked at this was WISDOM in 2014. And the wisdom that we gained from this trial is that in individuals on triple therapy who had a stepwise gradual withdrawal from ICS, they had a small drop in lung function in FEV1, but there was no increased risk to exacerbations over one year. And this trial looked specifically at people who exacerbate frequently and there was a gradual withdrawal of ICS, which may not be practical in the real world. And this is really where Sunset comes in, because it looked at the abrupt withdrawal of ICS in non-frequent exacerbators. Did I sense a couple of puns you just threw in there, Dan? It was like you didn't even miss a beat. Had to do it. I love it. Off to your fantastic start on the rounds table. Okay, Dan, get us into the methods. What was the design of this study? Where did it take place? So this was a randomized, double-blind, non-inferiority trial, and it took place over 26 weeks. And it was a multi-center trial involving 21 countries, largely European countries. Actually, it was 19 European countries. And then we threw in Canada and Argentina as well. And it ran from 2015 to 2017 across all seasons, which is actually an important thing for if you think about COPD exacerbations and viral illness. Okay. 
who did they include as far as their study participants? So they looked at adults who are at least 40 years old with moderate to severe airflow obstruction and on some kind of triple therapy regimen over the past six months who had not more than one COPD exacerbation in the last year. And most importantly, individuals with asthma were excluded, uh, and this is always crucially important to distinguish in these trials, although the authors didn't go into great detail about the exact criteria and how these people were excluded. And in your experience so far in the world of medicine and respirology, is this kind of an inclusion criteria? Are we trying to get at the sort of so-called most common or very common patient with COPD? Uh, I think so. I think this repre largely represents most of the patients that we see in day-to-day -day practice, absolutely. Okay. So tell us then specifically about the intervention that individuals were randomized to. So there was a four-week run-in period where after screening and finding all the eligible patients, these people were normalized on the same triple therapy regimen. Because remember, whatever six-month regimen they were on beforehand, it wasn't standardized across all of them. So they essentially gave them four weeks of the same salmeterol, fluticasone, and teotropium, which is essentially Advair and Spiriva. And then after this four weeks, they were randomized to either a control arm to continue this triple therapy or to an intervention arm where they de-escalated to just lava-lama of indicatorol and glycopuronium. And then they followed these people for 26 weeks. Interesting. So they got everybody on this exact same therapy, even though they were on the same sort of class of therapy. And then one of them, they dropped off their ICS. It's kind of a neat design. Okay. And what were they measuring as far as their outcomes here? So the primary outcome that they looked at was a decrease in FEV1, which is similar to what previous studies have looked at. So they looked at a cutoff of 50 milliliters of loss in FEV1 to qualify for non-inferiority. But there's some debate whether this is actually clinically meaningful. But as I said before, there are previous studies that have looked at the same outcome. Secondary outcomes that they looked at were exacerbations, health status questionnaires, so things like the transition dyspnea index and the St. George's respiratory questionnaire, which is validated in COPD, and then the mean use of rescue inhalers and adverse effects. Love to get into the minds of the authors and research coordinators who designed this trial. I find that to be such an unsatisfying outcome, a surrogate outcome of FEV1 to reflect disease status. We know FEV1 doesn't correlate well to symptoms in patients with COPD. I know there's practical reasons why they do it, perhaps sample size issues, but I don't know. I feel unsatisfied by it. Well, that's right. And there is some thought about whether this is the most appropriate primary outcome. So we know that actually a minimum clinically important difference in FEV1, the American Thoracic Society actually says that this would be about 100 to 140 cc's in FEV1. And the way they define this minimum clinically important difference is by anchoring it to other secondary outcomes like exacerbation or health status. So even so, you would think is 50 cc's, even if it is non-inferior, is that clinically relevant? And the real reason why they look at FEV1, and while all these trials have looked at FEV1 in the past, is because it's very nicely reflective of the natural history of the progression of the disease that we're looking at. COPD really is a condition where there's progressive obstruction and progressive loss of your FEV1. And the FDA actually approves new COPD drugs based on the benefits seen in FEV1 and not on things like health questionnaires, which might be more important to patients and symptomatically, of course, and might be more important to us as clinicians. But for now, this is what we have. Okay. Well, we got to do with what we got. And so what do we get from the results? 
So what we found in this study is that there were 1,053 individuals that underwent randomization, and your typical patient was a white man. I should mention that it was 99% Caucasian. So white man with moderate airflow limitation and no exacerbations in the past year. Actually, two-thirds of the population here, a very significant proportion, did not have any exacerbation. So over the 26 weeks, there was an average decline in FEV1 of about 26 milliliters. And the 95% confidence interval ranges from negative 53 milliliters to one milliliter. And because this 95% confidence interval does cross the pre-specified value of the negative 50 cc's, the authors couldn't confirm non-inferiority. Ah, they didn't get that p-value, so to speak, the equivalent of it in the non-inferiority trial. Tell me about the timing of these changes, that's kind of what I'm interested in, is if you take off the ICS, how quickly do you see these changes in their FEV1? Yeah, so this drop in FEV1 actually occurred quite quickly, which is similar to previous trials, similar to Wisdom, where within the first four weeks, essentially, you had this drop-off that then remained constant and didn't change throughout. Okay. And you had a whole host of secondary outcomes that you listed. Tell us just the highlights of the ones you thought you should bring up. Yeah, so the most important secondary outcome really is the exacerbation rate. And they found no difference between the two groups. The annualized rate that they looked at that they found was 0.5 exacerbations per year, which is probably a little bit on the low side and probably also on the low side because there was such short follow-up of only six months. Usually in these trials where you're really looking to target exacerbations, there are year-long or multiple-year trials as opposed to just six months. The other things that they looked at were health status by uh, dyspnea and by respiratory questionnaires or rescue medication use, and there was no difference between any of these. Very importantly, there was no significant difference in adverse effects, although there was a numerical increase in pneumonias and oral candida in the ICS group, as we might expect. Hmm. Okay, so tell me what stuck out about this trial? What was interesting to you that you thought would be important to bring up for our listeners? Well, I think it's really important that we're getting more and more evidence regarding the withdrawal of ICS and the withdrawal of medications that we don't need in COPD, both in terms of burden for our patient using these medications as well as the cost to society. One very interesting sub-analysis that happened in this study as well was looking at those individuals who had eosinophil counts over 300. So people with high eosinophil and you can think of these people as having a bit twitchier or more reactive airways, sort of more similar to the asthma phenotype, even though they are by definition COPD. And in these individuals, they actually had a higher risk of exacerbations when studied in isolation compared to everybody else once you removed their ICS. So these people might be the people in whom you take a second look at and you say, hmm, maybe this isn't the right person to withdraw that ICS in. But Apart from this, in everybody else, it gives us good reassurance that it's safe to abruptly stop your ICS without significant risk of increased exacerbations or drop in lung function. Uh, it's kind of neat <clears throat> trying to nuance some of the findings. Keep in mind, remember, they are secondary outcomes, so they're definitely hypothesis generating, but nevertheless, some important information, I think, contained within there. Absolutely. All right, Dan, take it home for us. Main learning points for our listeners from the sunset trial. Gotcha. So main learning points are that in most COPD patients on triple therapy with one or fewer exacerbations in the last year, it's probably safe to withdraw your ICS and probably safe to do so abruptly 
which is in keeping with them not being needed as per gold guidelines. And while there's a small drop in lung function that can't be definitively said as non-inferior, it's very likely clinically insignificant as we discussed. The only people who I would give a second look to are those with eosinophils over 300, where I might give a second guess in terms of withdrawing the ICS, but otherwise go ahead and take away that ICS. Well, I would say that I've learned from this trial. I think I agree with you completely. You know, you can you can quibble about the lack of non-inferiority, but it's pretty close, and I think it all kind of fits within the context of the literature. But I would say as a general internist, admitting my own uh, shortcomings, I don't actually ever look at serum eosinophils in people with COBD, although I do know they're part of the risk stratification score, such as the Bode index. But I think I might start doing that because I think, you know, withdrawing inhaled corticosteroids, which cost a lot and have adverse effects associated with them, is important. And if uh, I need to be potentially careful about in whom I do this to, I think I may start to look more closely at their serum eosinophils, which thankfully come along with a routine CPC anyways. That's right. Make use of the information you have available to you. Well, Dan, that was a great study to bring to the show for your kickoff episode. I hope a lot of our listeners will enjoy that because I think it actually has a lot of broad applicability to general practice. Let's move on now to the article that I covered for this week. It's looking at the risk of thromboembolism, or specifically kind of like stroke, in individuals who develop post-operative atrial fibrillation after non-cardiac surgery. This was published in JAK, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, in October of 2018, so fresh off the press at the time of recording. And Dr. Butt et al. uh, published this study, which I thought would be interesting to cover. So obviously this is something that we see extremely frequently. So what was the bottom line of this article? Well, Dan, uh, this retrospective matched cohort study that used administrative data in Denmark, just over 18,000 individuals who developed non-valvular atrial fibrillation, it found that the risk of thromboembolism in the roughly 3,800 individuals that actually developed AFib postoperatively was similar to those who developed AFib during a hospitalization event. And furthermore, it found that the rates of anticoagulation for both groups were surprisingly low, especially given that 15% of these individuals overall would ultimately end up having a thromboembolic event in the following 10 years. Uh, All right, so then why did you choose this article, or why do you think this article is important for us? Well, it's interesting that you said we see this very commonly. I think that we definitely have a referral bias for the medical consult service, but I do agree. I am, and you are, and we all are in medicine, often asked to see and evaluate what to do about somebody who develops atrial fibrillation postoperatively. It's thought to be somewhere between 0.3 and 4% as far as its incidence or prevalence after surgery, much less common than post-cardiac surgery, of course. The evidence around the long-term risk of embolic events in these individuals is actually quite limited, and it's lacking. And the traditional teaching, at least what I was taught, was that really atrial fibrillation postoperatively shouldn't really be taken all that seriously. Perhaps that person has sort of, quote unquote, failed their stress test and need to have further monitoring, but we don't treat that atrial fibrillation up front in any way unless it persists after they recover from surgery. So ultimately, I thought that this study was important because it was a very high quality approach using uh, administrative data to be able to try and get at these questions. Great, and that's definitely what I've been taught throughout my training. So let's see if this trial uh, can teach us anything differently. So what was the design of this study? 
Well, as mentioned, it used uh, a large repository of administrative data that is available in Denmark, and the Danes are well known for uh, a rich data set there. Sounds good. And who were the patients? So they had sort of a fairly broad inclusion criteria, adults who were at least 30 years old. They had to be undergoing their first ever surgery between 1996 and 2015, and they had to be undergoing non-cardiac surgery. And as you would expect, no known history of AFib, no use of anticoagulants previously. And obviously, these individuals had to have developed post-operative atrial fibrillation. Now, they matched these individuals to those who were hospitalized and subsequently diagnosed with AFib, which I thought was kind of a nice subtle twist in the sense that they didn't just pick general population with atrial fibrillation. They found people who were sick or who were hospitalized specifically for a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, which was a bit more of an active comparator, and I thought that was a nice approach. And they essentially used the CHADS-VASC score, so a risk score for future risk of embolic stroke with atrial fibrillation, They used their scores to actually match individuals so that these individuals had similar future risk of stroke. Sounds good. So what did we look at for exposure in this study? So it's very simple. They compared individuals with post-operative atrial fibrillation to those matched individuals with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. And so what were the primary outcomes that they were looking at? So I think quite reasonably, as you would expect, their outcome was thromboembolism. But the thromboembolism outcome was actually a composite of ischemic stroke, transient cerebral ischemia, and thrombosis or embolism in peripheral arteries. So they're really looking at embolism anywhere, although most of the time emboli from atrial fibrillation would be an ischemic stroke or at least a transient ischemic attack from that sense. They also include secondary outcomes looking at rehospitalization for atrial fibrillation and all-cause mortality. Okay, okay, sounds good. So what did they find? Well, Dan, just over 6,000 individuals had post-operative atrial fibrillation. Now, they were only able to match just about 3,800 of them, and they matched them to 15,000 individuals with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. This brings up a little amber alert in my mind. It makes me wonder what happened to the, you know, 40-ish percent of individuals that they couldn't match. Why couldn't they match those individuals, and how are they different underlying this cohort of individuals? It raises the possibility of a bias that's going on there. Nevertheless, a typical patient included in this study was a 77-year-old woman who had hypertension. About 3% had diabetes, 15% had coronary artery disease, another 15% had heart failure, and 11% had COPD. So I think overall, maybe a slightly lower risk group than we would might see on our services that were consulted for. Chad's two score here was 1.4, if you're familiar with that. And I would say most often we would say see a Chad's of two to four. Well, I don't know. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, taking a look at those numbers, uh, 3% for diabetes or 15% for heart disease seems a little bit on the lower side in terms of patients that we often see on the service. Yeah, so it just may mean that their risk of overall outcomes might be slightly less than what we would apply to, but that's okay. Overall, these people were undergoing orthopedic or abdominal surgery, so quite reasonable, quite common. And over a median of four years of follow-up, 13% of individuals in each group developed their primary outcome of thromboembolism. So quite a large number of people, despite our comments about them being relatively low risk, or lower risk, I should say. 
And when you got down to the meat of the matter of the rates of anticoagulation, only 24% of the individuals with postoperative AFib and 41% of the individuals with non-valvular AFib received anticoagulation within 30 days of discharge from hospital, which may be reasonable because they just had major surgery and people are a little bit hesitant to put them on blood thinners. But what the authors did find was that there was an association between the use of anticoagulation and a reduction in the overall risk of thromboembolism in both groups by approximately 50%. They also saw a decreased risk of all-cause mortality in both groups, but no difference between the two groups. So 41% of uh, people were anticoagulated in the new valvular AFib group. That seems very low compared to what we usually try to strive for. Yeah, and I think that it's a limitation of using administrative data in this context, Dan. I mean, there's, there's a couple possible reasons for that I can think of for that. Number one, the diagnosis of AFib was either their primary diagnosis or their first secondary diagnosis in the way that the hospital coders do it. And you can think of some patients that you've seen maybe who have had severe pneumonia as their primary diagnosis, and maybe they developed new onset AFib in the context of that pneumonia. Some of us may not anticoagulate that episode of atrial fibrillation because we thought, you know, they're very sick, it's sort of critical illness, and we don't always anticoagulate that. The second thing to say is sometimes people may start anticoagulation in the outpatient setting when they are able to have more of a discussion and a follow-up with a provider. And so you might also be seeing some element of, you know, individual physicians not being too aggressive with anticoagulation up front and referring to, say, cardiology down the road to consider anticoagulation in that individual. It just didn't happen in the first 30 days of discharge, and so it wouldn't be captured in this study. All right. And other than that, are there any other interesting points or observations that you wanted to make about this study? Well, I think the most important comment to make for this study is not to misinterpret the association between lower risk of future stroke and the use of anticoagulation in this population. There is a huge risk that the people who are being anticoagulated in this group of patients are healthier, have a lower risk of bleeding, and thereby probably have a lower risk of future stroke to begin with. So you may see that the overall lowered risk in those who are anticoagulated is just a simple carrying along of those people being healthier. And this study is not evaluating the efficacy of anticoagulation in these individuals. So I just want to make sure that's interpreted with caution. But it's certainly an interesting avenue to explore further and say something like a randomized trial could set up from this study using this as its base rationale. Definitely, definitely. And so let's wrap it all up. And why don't you let us know what are the main learning points that you took away from this article and how will this change your practice? Well, I think this really starts to change the way I think about postoperative atrial fibrillation in non-cardiac surgery. This study, to me, demonstrates that this is actually a clinically relevant and significant entity that carries significant similar risk to those who have non-valvular atrial fibrillation on its own. And I think we really need to think carefully about these individuals and, you know, counsel them on their future risk when we observe this happening. What am I going to do about it? And what, I, what do I think overall we should all be doing about it? Well, I think first and foremost, we should be monitoring these people much more carefully after their discharge from hospital to look for you know, persistent AFib as a reason to anticoagulate them up front where we know it does work. And I think that we need to call for some brave soul out there to conduct a randomized trial where we are treating this postoperatively versus not to actually definitively determine 
if anticoagulation lowers risk overall. Fair enough. So I think we're going to have a lot of battles on our hands going forward between the internists and the surgeons and starting people on anticoagulation postoperatively, it sounds like. Well, it's a good question. I mean, we don't even know the timing of it, right? Like, so I think that's where it really calls for good collaborative care between the surgeons and the internal medicine physicians. But ultimately, you know, the surgeons know about bleeding and I respect that. And so I, I express my concerns and I speak to them about starting anticoagulation in those who need it. And I rely on them to tell me when they think it's safe to do so from a bleeding context. So as with everything else in medicine, we're moving more and more towards individualized care. Sounds like a plan. Absolutely. Sounds like a good plan, I would say. There we go. Well, Dan, that was a good plan. It was a great show. And as all things must come to an end, it's now time for my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Dan, tell me what you are reading about this week. So I read an interesting article in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's actually on October 25th, and it was a perspective piece called Learning Empathy from My 97 Camry. And this piece is not just for old car lovers, but it's a very, very lovely creative piece that shows us that empathy is difficult to maintain, even over the short term, not to mention over years of practice. And it's, I think we all know that it's very easy to let cynicism creep in in our day-to-day work. And this piece really compares losing empathy to losing power steering in an old car and needing to replace that fluid and maybe even requiring a trip to the mechanic if things get bad enough or if you leave things unchecked for long enough. And much the same in medicine, I think we need to constantly remind ourselves to add fluid and you know keep ourselves in check, whether this is through family or friends or simply by taking a minute to read a piece of creative writing as I did this week. I like that analogy. I'm not a car guy myself, but I certainly do appreciate and relate to that nevertheless. So thanks, Dan, for sharing that. I read an interesting essay in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it was entitled Dying Healthy. I found it to be totally fascinating. So it really gets to the core of the idea that in medicine over the last hundred years or so, we've made incredible strides in improving life expectancy. And not so much necessarily about the advances in medical technology per se, but largely as a result of advances in socioeconomics and political changes to help developing countries and, you know, marginalized populations. But nevertheless, recent data from scientists far smarter than I have determined that the human lifespan is probably about 115 years maximum, and virtually all humans will die before the age of 90. We don't really, or they don't really think that that can be pushed all that much further. And so we're facing now a law of diminishing returns. And the example the authors give is that between 2001 and 2012, they looked at the additional survival of all of the cancer drugs that were approved and and used in the U.S. and around the world. And the average increase in survival in these medications was only 2.1 months. So we're talking really small returns on huge investments in medical treatment and research. But the authors here are, and I would actually completely agree with them, is to say that we should change our focus from the efforts on quantity of life to really quality of life. What's interesting about this article is how the authors propose to do that. And I'll leave that for you interested listeners to read about further. And I do encourage you to read it because it's quite a fascinating article. Sounds super interesting. I always thought uh, trying to increase our life expectancy as much as possible was all about caloric restriction and just having a, a cup of tea every day. But uh, sounds like I should give that article a read. Well, I live by those caloric intake restrictions and a cup of tea especially. But anyways, Dan, 
Great having you on the show. Thank you so much for a wonderful first episode, and we certainly hope to have you back as a regular on our rounds table in the future. Sounds good. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.